Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com. On the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of Welcome life. to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Dot com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Adam Miller, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Good, thank you. Excellent. We're uh, we're grateful to have uh, Adam on today. Adam is the author of Rube Goldberg Machine's Essays in Mormon Theology, and it's one of my uh, favorite topics that you cover, which is grace. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today and talk about the book. But Adam, wondered if you might start us off by telling us a little bit, uh, maybe briefly, about your growing up years. Well, I grew up in the church in Pennsylvania, in small wards and branches. My uh, my dad grew up in the church, but my mother did not. Uh, when they married, my dad was in the navy, and uh, uh, my mom was home alone for a while when the missionaries tracked her out. Uh, and they knocked on her door, and she said, well, "I think uh, I think my husband may be a Mormon. Why don't you <laughs> why don't you come in?" Uh, when my dad got back. Uh, uh, she'd gone quite a ways with the missionaries. He was surprised, I think, but uh, uh, then they both got serious about the church. My, I have a, an older brother, an older sister, and a little sister, and we were all raised in the church then together. Uh, I went to BYU, served a mission in Albuquerque. Uh, now I live in Texas, near Dallas. How do you like it there? Dallas is nice. It's nice. So you served your mission in Albuquerque. Uh-huh. Uh, what did you learn from your mission? I think one of the most important things I learned from my mission was that there's a kind of joy that follows from getting outside of your own head and not spending your time doing what you would prefer to be doing. <laughs> right? There's a kind of there's a kind of freedom that comes from uh, spending your time doing what other people need you to do rather than what you think you want to do. Yeah, I didn't serve a mission. I joined the church when I was 17, but watching missionaries, there was a big difference between. Uh, um, the majority of them who who served their tail end off, and and a few that kind of slacked. And you're right, the ones that kind of didn't really care were the ones that kind of put their own priorities first. And if anything, I think a mission does teach you to to set priorities. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your your book. Obviously, is a a big step in 
philosophy and theology within the LDS Church and some of your your own uh, understanding of different principles. But if we back up a little bit and ask you, what, what got you interested in theology? How did you get started down that path? Well, my uh, I am a professional philosopher. I'm a philosophy professor. My bachelor's degree was in comparative literature, and my master's and Ph.D. were in philosophy. Uh, I started out in literature, but it turned out that as much as I loved literature, uh, I loved literary theory even more. And as much as I loved the beauty of language, I loved uh, dealing with the big questions that literature raised even more. And so when I decided to go to grad school, I, I decided to dive in uh, to, you know, without reservation into philosophy instead, because it's the, you know, it's the big, it's the big questions that I was interested in. What's, what's real? How do you know? What does it mean to exist? How do we know what we know? What does it mean to know something? And all those kind of really big classic philosophical questions were uh, what kept me up at night. Had you always been that way? Did you always were you uh, one of these kids that was always asking questions to mom and dad? I'd always been kind of bookish. I don't know that I drove my parents crazier with why questions more than other kids. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'd always been reflective. I think you uh, you seem very drawn uh, to the topic of grace in your work, and it's a subject that I've over the last five years just fell in love with. I when I joined the church as a as a teenager in, in my first you know ten years or so in the church. I just kind of thought grace was this side topic that we rarely ever talked about and, and that we place so much more emphasis on works. And as I got into to delving into this subject, I just found it to be this deep thing that was just missing in my life. And it seems like it's a subject you're attracted to in a deep way. What what got you down, going down the road of, of being attracted to the subject of grace? Well, I think the basic attraction for me is very personal, and it has to do with the fact that I'm a sinner. So it right. seemed, you know, the more the more clear I got about uh, about what it meant to be uh, a natural man and the sinner, the more uh, interested I became in the topic of grace, almost as a matter of necessity. Uh, Were you like me in that, as a younger person, you kind of felt like you could work things out on your own, that there was some master plan where you could, over the course of your life, put in so much effort and perfect yourself. And as you're kind of pointing out there, at some point you just realize that that's not the case, and all of a sudden you need that that missing ingredient, which also happens to be probably the most important ingredient, which is grace. Yeah, I think uh, I think I felt that way for a long time. I felt like uh, I was supposed to be able to do it on my own, and maybe for a while I was foolish enough to think that that I could if I tried hard enough. In the in the church, it seems like, and maybe I'm wrong, and you can you can certainly share a different point of view, but it seems like in the church, up until maybe the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years, grace is a subject that either hasn't been talked about or when it has, it's been referred to under other names. Uh, for instance, the enabling power of Jesus Christ or the, the power of the atonement. And so a lot of members of the church almost didn't make that connection and didn't really realize that there was there was this emphasis on grace going on, or maybe even at times, maybe not an emphasis going on. Do you sense a shift in the church? Do you feel like there's more of an emphasis of grace today within the church? Yeah, I think that's a word that we've become more and more comfortable with owning. I mean, part of what part of what attracted me to the topic of grace was the kind of personal necessity. But the other thing, part of what attracted me to the topic of grace was just an increasing familiarity with Scripture itself. Uh, and grace is a profoundly central scriptural topic. 
especially in the New Testament and especially in Paul, right? It's just, it's at the very core of what the gospel is. Uh, and I think the, the clearer picture we get of what it means to be the kind of people that we are and the clearer picture we get of what the scriptures are actually saying, I think the more the word grace uh, insists that we use it. My uh, my view of grace, I was on BYU Speech's site one day, and I came across uh, Brad Wilcox's talk, His Grace is Sufficient. And from there, I, I went to reading Believing Christ, the Parable of the Bicycle, Stephen Robinson, and then uh, Robert Millett's um, Women's Conference talk, and it's an old talk, but I had just found it. And he spent time just defining grace for 40 minutes uh, in a way that Latter-day Saints could maybe come just a little closer rather than pushing themselves away from how evangelicals see grace and obviously still recognizing that there is importance in works and effort. First off, are you aware of their work? Especially Robinson and Millet, not Wilcox so much. Uh, but Robinson's work, I think, you know, like a lot of people, uh, Robinson's work was pivotal for me personally. I, I remember very clearly on my mission reading for the first time, believing Christ and feeling like uh, lights had come on that I'd been sitting in the dark uh, for a long time before those lights came on. And when those lights came on, it felt perfectly natural. It felt like this is where I should have been sitting all along. Yeah, my my experience is the exact same in the sense that when I, I listened to uh, Brother Wilcox's talk, which plays off of Brother Robinson's book, same thing. It was a, a principle that I'd never wrapped my arms around. And then in just a short time, listening to it being explained in the way that he did, it just kind of opened up the door uh, for me to see the gospel as a whole in a whole new picture. Um, in what ways have you, I mean, obviously you're talking a little bit about how you've been influenced by Stephen Robinson's book, Believing Christ, but can you maybe speak to a moment for how that maybe influenced your views today? Well, I think it, it sent me searching. Right? Uh, grace is a theme that's important for me, not just in uh, the book that we're talking about, Ruth Goldberg Machines, uh, but it's a uh, it's the theme of my it's the topic of my dissertation. It's the topic of my first book. It's the topic of uh, my most recent book. It's a, it's the topic that's central to my work as a professional philosopher. And so you know that that kind of that initial introduction to the topic of grace that came by way of uh, Robinson and Millet, especially you know it kind of set me searching far and wide to try to understand. Uh, just how big and broad and important and central the the topic of grace can be, uh, and in some ways that's uh, that's confirmed the things that I initially felt when I read Robinson and Millet, and in some ways it's uh, it's led me to reconsider and reframe uh, what I initially understood them to be saying. Your uh, your book, Rube Goldberg Machines: uh, Essays of Mormon Theology. Uh, again, we're talking to Adam Miller today, uh, author of that book. Your views on on grace seem to be a lot deeper and and more unique to anywhere else I look within uh, within the realm of of Mormon uh, talk. Mormon speak about about these this gospel principle at least in the way that you're verbalizing it. What how do you account for the view that you've got, which just seems to be I don't know a whole lot more in depth than anything else I'm hearing. Partly what accounts for what's unique about my way of talking about grace is just. Uh, a difference in source materials, right? That my, as a professional philosopher, you know, the source materials I'm working with and thinking about grace, uh, include not just the scriptures, but include world scriptures and include, uh, work that's been done, right? Kind of technical, substantial work that's been done in philosophy and theology. 
Right, so that there's a kind of, I think there's a kind of broader base of source materials from which my position is being drawn. I think if I were, if I were to describe the difference between the approach that I take to Grace and the approach that, uh, Robinson and Millet and, uh, maybe Wilcox take to the approach of Grace is that I think what happens in, what happens in Robinson, if we take Robinson as an example, what happens in Robinson is though we get the topic of Grace restored to being a central gospel concept, uh, I think grace still ends up getting understood as a special form of work. Right? So you have the parable of the bicycle, in which the little girl uh, wants a bicycle, but uh, and she saves and she works and she gathers up every penny that she can, uh, but she's still spectacularly short, right, of being able to... Uh, have have as much money as she would need in order to get the bicycle, and then at that point her dad swoops in, right, and with an act of grace makes up the difference. Right, he fills in the gap for her, uh, and I think that's that's a good story. That's a good place to start. But I think that when we think about grace that way, uh, then grace always ends up being a kind of gap filler. Right, you and I do as much as we can, we work as hard as we can, and grace comes in at the end as a kind of uh, as what fills in the gap and makes up the difference for us. And when we think about grace that way, then grace ends up being a special kind of work, right? You and I do all the work that we can, uh, and grace is a kind of subspecies of work that does the work that you and I can't do. That's a special kind of work. Uh, but I think I would prefer to frame the whole thing the other way around from the very beginning and not think about grace as a special kind of work that fills in the gaps in our work, but to think about work itself as one of the graces that God gives us. In other words, I'd like rather than thinking about work as the master category with grace as a kind of subcategory of work, I want to think about grace as the master category and understand work itself as a form of grace uh, that God wants to give us. So the whole thing is grace from top to bottom, uh, not just what comes to fill in the gaps for us. Right, so that even the effort to push towards this eternal goal somewhere off in the distance of eternities of being perfect is a grace itself. Yeah, even the work that I get to do is itself a gift from God. Awesome. The uh, the title of your book, Rube Goldberg Machines, has precipitated me kind of gaining an understanding of what a Rube Goldberg machine even is. Which this was kind of funny. I mm-hmm. I I did I look at the title, your title of your book and I'm I'm kind of delving into it. And so the first thing I do is I go on Google and I type in Rube Goldberg machine, and what I get is about 35 videos of kids up in the attic putting together these intricate. Um, Little gadgets that a ball falls down a, a, a little trough and hits a little card and the card bumps into something else and mm-hmm. next thing you know, 30 different things are happening. Uh, so first off, I just, I got a chuckle out of it. it uh, for my listeners, uh, maybe if you could just define what a Rube Goldberg machine is. Right, a R- Rube Goldberg, uh, Rube Goldberg is a cartoonist from the early 20th century and uh, he was especially famous for these cartoons that he would draw. Uh, of these really complicated contraptions uh, that, despite their being complicated, were really meant to just perform a really simple task. Uh, and people have probably seen these. People have probably seen these cartoons somewhere along the way. Uh, or you could think you could maybe think of all those kinds of complicated uh, machines that Wiley e. Coyote would put together to catch the Road Runner, and then they would always be so complicated <laughs> that they would never, <laughs> they would never work. Uh, but then the, the right that then that becomes just a kind of uh it becomes a kind of general name for those for complicated machines that really are just meant to do a very simple thing. But part of the fun of those machines then is the 
is the gratuity of them, right? The way that they the way that they bring to bear so many ordinary objects uh, to perform in an unusual way, a very simple thing. Excellent. And for my listeners, if, I think you'd get a kick out of just uh, going on one of these search engines and just taking a look at a few videos of what a Rube Goldberg machine is. It'll it'll help you get a chuckle as I ask this next question, which is a Rube Goldberg machine, as you point out, is this intricate plan of multiple tasks being done to essentially serve some end that could have been done way, way easier. It seems to be that you're making light of yourself as you write this book and that you're not taking yourself too seriously. Um, what were your thoughts as you kind of put the title of this book together in relation to your theology and philosophy on, on the different items in the book? Well, I think I wanted to point out a couple of things about what it means to do theology as a Mormon. Uh, it's obvious that we don't have professional theologians or professional philosophers in the church. You know, we have prophets and apostles, uh, general authorities and state presidents and bishops. And these people aren't trained uh, theologians or trained philosophers, and I think that that's, that's good, right? We want them to be prophets and apostles, not philosophers and theologians. Right. But I think that it means that, that the space that we do have in Mormonism for philosophy and theology is a different kind of space than it may be in other, in other traditions. Right? In other traditions, if you do theology, uh, maybe it, it might be dead serious because you're, you're the Pope, right? But in our tradition, if you do theology, the space that we have for it, it's a kind of playful space. It's a kind of speculative space, right? Where you, uh, your work isn't authoritative. Uh, it's personal. It's maybe academic. It's ad hoc. Uh, you see what you can make out of the pieces that are available. Uh, and there's a kind of, there's just a kind of joy that comes from putting something beautiful together out of as many interesting pieces as you can find. Uh, even if in the end, the thing that you, the machine that you put together, the church doesn't need it necessarily. Right, the church doesn't need me to tell it what grace is. Right, the church doesn't need me to come in and explain who Jesus is or, or why he matters. Uh, it's the business of the apostles and prophets. But but there is still room for you and I to to think and to play and to sort and to write and to to see what we can discover. Uh, and we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously in doing that work, even if the work itself has a kind of seriousness. Uh, the importance of the work itself demands that I not take myself too seriously in doing it. That's beautiful. In your book, you seem to uh, champion an approach that suggests that we let go of the anxiety that comes with worrying about all the possibilities of life and begin to grasp grasp that God is in charge. And and you kind of pointed out this earlier when you said that work itself is a grace. And so um, by kind of understanding that, that we maybe don't need to worry about every single possibility as our day plays out and and start to look at everything that happens to us as a gift or as a grace. Could uh, Could you speak for a moment, I guess, about how how you approach life or how your book tends to, you know, talk about how we should see life as a grace. I know you talked about it a little bit earlier, but maybe kind of in a broader view how people can, can wake up in the morning and see their day. Yeah, I think one way to talk about this is to say that most of us, most of the time, are very, very busy working very, very hard to make our story about how the world should be work. And I have a story about how my life should be and about how the world should be and about how my wife should be and about how my kids should be. Uh, and I spend a lot of time every day trying to get that story to go the way that I want it to go. <laughs> right? And then, and then when it doesn't go that way, right, then, then we get irritated, we get upset, we get angry, we get frustrated. Uh, but I think maybe the fundamental thing we have to learn in life is that my story is not God's story. 
uh, and that what he wants from me in the end is to stop trying to tell my story and live his story instead. And I think that's that's another way of talking about grace, too. Right? I, I'm working hard all the time to make my story turn out the way I want. Uh, but in some ways, I'm going to... Salvation depends on my being willing to put that down and set it aside and live and love the story that God is using my life to tell, even if that's not the story I wanted. Uh, when we think about grace... We think we often think about it as something that we want, but that maybe God doesn't want to give us. But I think grace is often more the other way around. Right? That the trouble is that God is trying to give us all kinds of graces that we don't want, and we're constantly running away from it. And it's another way to say this then is to is to say, I think a basic problem we have when we talk about grace in the church is that we talk about grace as if it were just a response to sin, right? As if sin came first. Sin comes first, and then God fixes that by his grace. But I think we'd be much better off understanding it the other way around. It's grace that comes first, and it's grace that's coming constantly, and sin in the end is mostly the product of my not wanting to receive what it is that God's giving, because I prefer my story to his. Uh, but redemption in the end depends on, on my giving up my attachment to my own story uh, and living his instead. That's really great. As you're sitting there sharing that thought, my mind turned to Joseph of uh, of Egypt, and, and he certainly he has kind of this life set before him. Yeah. And his brothers sell him into slavery. He he serves Potiphar. He gets in trouble there. Next thing you know, he's he's in prison. And while he's in prison, I don't get the feeling. I mean, obviously, we just have this short background of the story, but I don't get the feeling like he's complaining or looking negatively upon it that he didn't do anything negative or sin to deserve that. And so at the end of the day, it's really God who placed him there and that he saw it that way. And that rather than, like you say, turn away from this gift, he used it for a lot of good. Yeah, that's a nice example, I think. Joseph, well, Joseph was, I think, a bit of a punk before he got sold into Egypt. Sure. No, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, but yeah, right, this is, this is not only, this is Joseph's story, this is everybody's story. That Joseph had an idea of, of who he was and how his life was supposed to go. Uh, and that's not how it went, because it never does. Uh, and then the question is whether or not you're going to get bitter and hang on to how you thought things should have been, or whether you're going to uh, lay down on the altar your version of things. You know, Abraham may be even a better example than Joseph. In the end, God asked Abraham to put everything back on the altar. He asked Abraham to put his story on the altar. He asked Abraham to put his son on the altar. And in one sense, God demanded in the end that Abraham put even Abraham's version of God's own stories back on the altar. Because when he asked him to sacrifice uh, Isaac, God was asking Abraham to sacrifice the promises that God himself had made to Abraham. Uh, that's a tough pill to swallow. No, right. no wonder we're running from grace. Yeah, just the way that you describe grace, I hope that at the very least what my listeners do is they... They walk away, as I said, not worrying about everything and realizing that as long as you're, as the scriptures say, pressing forward with steadfastness, that, that the things that happen, the things that occur, the trials that come, the challenges that maybe face you in everyday life, that, that these can be seen and, and really are graces. It, uh, I was even thinking about Joseph Smith's uh, father, and this is a story I share often in church when people start getting caught up on woe is me. But Joseph Smith's father, you know, the family's born in Sharon, Vermont. And they're planting crops. The crops fail, I believe, three years in a row. 
and the family finally moves from Sharon, Vermont, to Palmyra. But in the midst of these crops failing in Vermont, where does the Lord need Joseph Jr. at? He needs him in Palmyra. And so at the end of the day, we ask, you know, does God have a hand in the crops failing? Well, probably, because that's what takes the family there. And yet in the midst of those crops failing, it's such a negative and such a hard thing. And they've set up shop in Vermont. They've bought land. They've they've tried to, to get their family going, as you say, get their story moving in the direction that they want it to. And yet at the end of the day, uh, we ought not to see the negative things as something that, you know, Satan is throwing at us necessarily, but perhaps they're for our own good at the end. And so I really love how your view ties into this, let go of the anxiety and just just be happy and about what's in front of you, but also realizing that some challenges are real, but in the end they, they do make us better. Yeah. If God didn't make the crops fail, I think we we can at least say God can use it, right? Right. Uh, this stuff that comes, that's given, and all of its difficulty, uh, it will have been a grace if we let God work in us, bringing ourselves to bear on it. Beautiful. Much of my uh, my podcast, Adam, deals with, as you know, people who are struggling in the Gospels, people who, who struggle with that, what they perceive as a dichotomy of faith and doubt. And in reality, I see those as being uh, two peas in the same pod. But from the perspective of maybe some of your thoughts, some of the things that you've shared in your book, maybe just some of your own personal thoughts aside from it, uh, any thoughts for those who, who are struggling with their testimony, those who are having a hard time maybe with some of the difficult issues? Well, I think I'd want to start by saying what you just did, that faith and doubt are belong together, not apart, right? That in some ways they're, uh, they're the fuel in each other's engines. And in Zen, in Zen Buddhism, they have this saying that three things are necessary for liberation and redemption. Uh, great faith, great doubt, uh, and great effort. Those three things. But you have to have all three. Great faith, great doubt, and great effort. And I think, uh, we need to we need to get a feel for the very positive, constructive role that doubt can play in a spiritual life. Because you and I, right, we have a lot of we have a lot of wrong ideas about things. We're attached to a lot of uh, a lot of very selfish, very biased perspectives. And if we if we aren't brought to the point that we doubt our own stories, if we aren't brought to the point where doubt functions as a kind of solvent. Uh, it loosens my attachment to my own version of things, then God's going to be limited uh, in how he can reach out to me and help me and save me and change me. God's done, you know, God wants to make me into something more than what I am, but part of that is going to involve my letting go of things uh, that I don't need to be hanging on to because they're wrong or because they're false or because they're selfish. Right, and doubt plays a powerful, important, positive, spiritual role in that story by being the solvent that frees me from what the things that I have to let go of. If we don't have any room for doubt in our lives, then we don't have any room to change. I think you know the other the other thing I'd like to say in general about about the problem of uh, kind of faith crises that we sometimes experience uh, is that if if we're going to make any progress in the gospel. It's going to involve not just my letting go of my stories about how things should be, but it will involve even my willingness to let go of my version of God's story about how things should be. Uh, and that can be hard. That can be very hard. Uh, but that's what it's going to take in the end, is a willingness on my part to say, my story is not God's story. My version of God's story is not even God's story. And I'm going to trust his version, not mine. 
even if I'm not exactly sure what his version is. I love that because it speaks so much to one of the things I try to emphasize in this podcast is that each of us in our time in the gospel, either the books we've read or the talks that we've heard, the lessons that we've received, and because various members of the church see the gospel in various ways, we tend to set up these these assumptions and expectations in the gospel of what it is or what God is or how prophets and apostles behave and act and and whether everything they say is the word of God and will of God or whether we recognize that scripture points out that a prophet is only a prophet when acting as such and, and allowing them to be flawed in, in some cases. And what you're speaking at when you talk about doubt being a solvent and how we need to let go of not just our own story but of our version of what God's story is, you seem to be speaking very much to this disassembling over time our own expectations and assumptions and then little by little rebuilding those in a way that they can not only hold up but be spiritually satisfying. But then you also seem to indicate too that that as time goes on, you may not be just dissembling these one time. That you may be taking down your your house of cards per se and putting them back together, you know, multiple times during your lifetime. I think the more seriously we let God be at work in our lives, the deeper and more continual that process will be. I think this is this is what I would this is what I would really like to propose with respect to faith crises, right? Is is to say this is if you're experiencing that kind of crisis, this is not necessarily a sign that things have gone wrong. This may very well be a sign that things are perhaps for the first time really going right. This may be the sign that for the first time God is really seriously at work transforming your heart and mind. And that, like Abraham, like it did for Abraham, is going to require you to put back on the altar the very promises that God made to you in the first place. Trusting God that despite everything, your child will be returned to you. Now that's incredible. I want to kind of wrap up. We are speaking with Adam Miller, author of Rube Goldberg Machine's Essays in Mormon Theology. And I just want to ask you one last question about the book. And I know much of the book, in one way or another, focuses on the atonement. And I wondered if you could briefly share an insight or two uh, that you've gathered regarding the atonement that might be helpful to those who are struggling with with faith and with doubt. I think one of the most important things to grasp with respect to the atonement is that the atonement is not for the next life, but for this one. And eternal life, even. Eternal life is not for the next life. It's for this one. Eternal life is not just a name for a kind of quantitative extension of our lives post-mortality, but it's a name for a way of being alive, right? And that that way of being alive applies just as much to here and now as it will to whatever happens to us after we die. And if we, in the end, are going to be capable of, of living the kind of life that God lives, that's the kind of life we're meant to live here and now, in which a life in which our eyes are open, in which our, our ears hear, in which our noses smell, in which our bodies feel a life that involves us being plugged in uh, without reservation to the world around us, experiencing and giving and receiving the same way that Jesus would if he were here. Where can listeners find your book? They can find it on Amazon. Uh, they can find it most uh, lots of different LDS booksellers, I think. Adam Miller, author of Rube Goldberg Machines. What, what do you hope people take away from the book? What is your, at the end of the day, First of all, let me say this. Having looked through the book, having read uh, multiple sections of it, if you are a deep thinker, a seeker within Mormonism, and this book isn't on your bookshelf, you're missing out. This is a great book to begin to to think more deeply about different principles within 
within the faith and within grace, within the atonement. And so I hope people will will take uh, that to heart and, and pick up your book. But for those who who do and those who read it, what do you what do you hope that they take away from it? What is what is the end goal in mind you had as you wrote it? Well, I don't think uh, I don't think that my book is the one true Rube Goldberg machine. Uh, I, don't, I doubt that there is such a thing. But I, you know what I hope for people when they read the book is that after they read it and put it down, I hope they feel a little more alive than they did when they started. Come, thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of loudest praise Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming My Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of to rescue me from danger interposed his precious precious blood oh that day when freed from sinning I shall see thy lovely face clothed then in blood-washed linen How I'll sing Thy sovereign grace Come my Lord, no longer tarry Take my ransom soul away Send Thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day To grace, how great a debtor Daily I am constrained to be Let thy goodness, like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to thee Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it Prone to leave the God I love Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above.